The next case, number 231432, Amy Ray v. Woburn Public Schools et al. At this time, would counsel for the appellant, Amy Ray, please come to the podium and introduce herself on the record to begin. Good morning, Your Honors. Laurel Francoeur for the appellant, Amy Ray. May I reserve two minutes for rebuttal, please? Yes. Thank you. May it please the Court. This case, in part, deals with an issue which the ABA and several scholars have described as one of the most muddled area in all of employment law. Specifically, we are dealing with the continuing violation doctrine. The appellant today is asking you to overturn the district court's order of dismissal because the district court failed to distinguish between the state and federal versions of this doctrine. In addition, the district court made improper factual findings and analyzed the complaint using an evidentiary rather than a pleading standard. This case is one for retaliation brought by a school nurse who was the victim of a scheme of harassment perpetrated by her principal over years in an effort to shame her and to retaliate against her after she stood up to advocate for students' rights. Both Massachusetts law and federal law recognize an exception to the statute of limitations in hostile work environment claims like this one under the theory of continuing violation. A continuing violation is one act comprised of repeated conduct over time, some of which may be past the statute of limitations. However, so long as one act occurs within the statute of limitations that is part of that same practice, all prior related acts are actionable and to be viewed as one single act. Counsel, may I ask you, do you view the discussion and analysis in the Morgan case to be applicable to all federal discrimination claims? Yes, I do, Your Honor. And can you explain why? Because it mostly deals with Title VI and Title VII, but ADA has also had the same statutory scheme. So my claims involve the ADA and Section 504, and it's basically the same statutory scheme. It has the same language in terms of retaliation as a form of harassment or discrimination under both ADA and 504. So I believe that the cases would interpret it under the same rubric. Do you have any case law, though, that specifically uses the Morgan analysis for the types of claims that you've brought? I don't have any in this district, Your Honor, but I can, if you'd like, after the argument, I can get you cases from other districts that have analyzed the ADA and Section 504. Thank you. That would be helpful. Can I ask you another question? Sure. Did you make arguments, and you very well may have, I'm not suggesting you didn't, but below, did you argue specifically about how the continuing violation theory should be analyzed under Morgan? Did you cite Morgan to the district court? Yes, I did in my brief. Yes, I did. In which brief? In the brief for the motion to dismiss. Thank you. Counsel, does your argument actually turn on whether Morgan has been, is applicable to the ADA and 504 claims? The district court seemed to say that there was no substantial relationship 
that would allow the continuing violation doctrine to apply. And I'm not sure that Morgan does apply to all federal statutes, much less state cause of action. But I'm wondering, do we really have to decide that issue? Decide the issue as to whether Morgan applies, Your Honor? Is that the question? Yes. Does your case depend on us accepting that proposition? No, it doesn't, Your Honor, because this case involves a hostile work environment. So we look at hostile work environment claims. And when you come to claims for hostile work environment, Morgan is the lead case for those types of claims. I'm sorry. You started with your ADA and 504 claims. In order for you to reverse the dismissal under the ADA and 504, do we actually have to decide whether your argument that the Morgan rule applies not just to hostile environment claims, but to these different federal statutes? Do we have to decide that? Or do you have an argument independent of that? I believe because this case invokes the hostile work environment and Morgan deals with federal claims involving hostile work environment, that this case clearly falls under the rubric of Morgan. I'm sorry. All aspects of your case or only the hostile environment claim? Well, so I'm talking about claims for we have the federal ADA claims and then we have the state 151B claims. You have discriminatory retaliation claims and you have hostile environment claims and you have a state claim, correct? Yes. Okay. And the thrust of my argument is that when it came to the ADA and 504 claims, and if you look in the decision by the district court, there's no reference to federal law at all, not even to the Morgan case or any federal law. So it's very troubling because the district court under the ADA and 504 claims said, as it is characterized by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, and then went on to talk about the standard of continuing violation under Massachusetts law, which is different from federal law. She did not cite any federal cases that dealt with any federal law in the section when she was analyzing the ADA and 504. Even if we accept your argument as to Morgan, aren't there also, though, discrete forms of adverse action here, like the denial of the transfer or the rejection from the leadership program? So would your client be barred from recovery on those injuries because they were sort of completed acts? I think, Your Honor, it depends on the definition of discrete acts. And this court and other courts have held that discrete acts are things that have tangible outcomes. And if you look at the timeline of events in this case, if we start in March of 2017, and we go from March 2017 until the time of filing suit and after, the only actions that were taking place were my client was complaining about her situation, but there were no discrete acts taken against her. The first discrete act that occurs is when she received a reprimand, and that was well within the statute of limitations period. That was in 2002. 
So no discrete acts before outside of the the limitations period. Uh, none that you would call had that had the de- the requisite definition of a discrete act as something that had tangible consequences. What we have here is that the fact pattern is very I'm similar. I'm sorry, counsel. Counsel, you go hire a lawyer to complain about it, and you complain to the union, you file a grievance, and you have your lawyer send letters to the school committee, and you're saying that is not enough awareness of uh, your situation, that we should ignore all of that and do an independent analysis of whether there were tangible effects I mean, she seems to have uh, conceded there were tangible effects or she wouldn't have taken those actions. Well, Your Honor, this case, again, is very similar to the facts in Thule. And in Thule, that involved a person who was complaining to her superiors about the action that was going on. And even in Thule, that person had hired a lawyer. And the court held that protests are not the same as discrete acts. And one of the reasons is because you cannot, you should not penalize a person for protesting. Uh, but counsel, if we, I understand your argument, but if we look at the complaint and we, I guess what I want to find out is do you agree that the doctrine seems to be fairly clear that even understanding uh, a hostile work environment to be a continuous ongoing situation, that to the extent that there are discrete acts that fulfill the definition, a plaintiff needs to have filed suit about those at the time that they occur. They, they don't get counted. Well, there is um, some uh, split among the circuits as to whether Morgan required a judge to split a hostile work environment claim in half. So in other words, in the D.C. circuit, for instance, and in Colorado, they've interpreted Morgan to not require that if you have all of the elements of a hostile work environment claim, and they satisfy all of the elements, and some of the acts in there happen to be discrete, that the Supreme Court wasn't requiring the judge to go and split and say, okay, now we have a discrete, we have a, that as long as it fell within the pattern. So that's, that's one of the uh, interpretations of Morgan. I'm not sure if this court has uh, made its own interpretation as to whether that applies or not, but so there is some argument that... Um, there is some argument we that... Do, uh, counsel, we do have um, cases, First Circuit cases, decided after Morgan, which continue to use the discrete act analysis, which historically we've used. Um, you have any cases to the contrary? Um, where you haven't used the discrete acts? Um, well, where uh, the court has continued to use the discrete acts analysis post-Morgan. The First Circuit has case law doing that. I'm asking if you have any contrary case law. Uh, no, I don't, Your Honor, but it's interesting to note that in all of the cases that involve continuing violation, so, for instance, all of the cases that the judge cited the district court, all of the cases in in all of our appellate briefs are, ju- are done at the summary judgment level. So certain 
parts of that determination of whether it is a discrete act involves findings of fact. In findings of fact, for instance, what a person knew and when they knew it. It involves whether there is a causal relationship. And this court has said that issues of causation, especially in regards to discrimination cases, are what they call the grist for the juror's mill. So even if we agree that this analysis was an appropriate one by using the discrete acts, it's not appropriate at the motion to dismiss stage. Okay. Do you have any cases from the First Circuit? There are First Circuit cases affirming dismissal on the pleadings on the discrete acts theory. You know, you hire a lawyer, you file a grievance. There are those cases. I take it you're relying on Trulli. Was that the case you cited? Trulli, yes. Okay. Any other case? O'Rourke has a very similar fact pattern, again, in that it was a person who made a series of complaints, and that was held to constitute a hostile work environment, that the complaints themselves were not discrete acts, but it was, again, part of this protest. And I think that makes sense because continuing violation doesn't say that a plaintiff can never protest about her situation. But, counsel, isn't there a difference between protesting, that that's what the plaintiff is doing, versus looking at what the employer did? I understood the discrete act analysis to be about that. So, for instance, when your client was reprimanded or when she lost pay for a day, those were things the employer did. So why wouldn't they be discrete acts? They're not protests because they're employer actions. Well, so you do have to look at the actions of the employer, but you also have to look at the effects of the action of the employer. So, for instance, there are cases in this circuit that say a review in and of itself is not a discrete act. A review that has consequences then is a discrete act. So, again, it's this very involved... Right, so you're looking at the actions of the employer. Did the employer do something that had an impact on the... Right, right. And what was that impact? But, again, these are all issues that are for the fact finder. What's disturbing about the case of the district court is the judge, in addition to keep referring to the Prima Fascia case, which is not the right standard, the standard, that's an evidentiary standard, but also the district court kept saying the record shows, the record shows. This is a motion to dismiss. There was no record. There was no evidence taken. There was no discovery. And so for her to go ahead and make decisions about things like state of mind or causal effects are not appropriate at the motion to dismiss stage. If I could delve a bit more deeply. When you say you have to look at the consequences, I believe your argument is that necessarily involves an inquiry into the state of mind of the plaintiff, and, therefore, there can never be a motion to dismiss under the discrete occurrences. Well, I don't think I would take it to that extreme, but this court has said that in regards to things like discriminatory animus, 
Some, even summary judgment should be granted very rarely. So I think, again, that it, it, it's more of a... I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's go back to the question. I didn't ask about discriminatory animus. I asked about whether you are saying an inherent part of the discrete uh, events putting, triggering uh, an obligation to uh, file something and therefore not within continuing violation. That's what we're talking about. Are you arguing that inherent and that must be when you say you look at consequences, must be a subjective analysis of how the plaintiff felt about those discrete acts? I think it's And if so, what is the case law in support of that proposition? I think it depends on the nature of the discrete acts. So if it's something that, for instance, Morgan has said is very easily determinable, firing, um, things like that that are very easily to distinguish, then maybe it would be appropriate to dismiss on a motion to dismiss. But when it comes to things that are more nebulous, things that, again, involve what was the consequence, I do believe that that is a question that has to be answered with all of the facts. Um, Thank you. Your time is up. Thank Thank you. Thank you, counsel. At this time, if counsel for the Appellees will please introduce herself on the record to begin. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court. My name is Alexandra Gill on behalf of the defendants' appellees, that is, Woburn Public Schools, City of Woburn, Carl Nelson, and Matthew Crowley. Um, Your Honors, the district court properly dismissed uh, Ms. Ray's complaint uh, for a variety of reasons, and I will agree with counsel for the appellant that your decision today is not dependent on the adoption of Morgan as to all federal claims relating to um, the continuing violations doctrine. There are several other grounds on which you can affirm the district court's decision. Um, Ms. Ray failed to plead any conduct that was sufficiently severe or pervasive to meet the standard for a failure, a hostile work environment claim. She made no causal connection between any of her alleged advocacy, and it's difficult to find any advocacy within that 130-some-odd-page complaint. Um, and um, furthermore, any of the earlier conduct that we've discussed is not com- should not come in, and even if it does come in, um, if the court does find it, it somehow is part of one continuous employment practice, it still fails for the same reasons that the other conduct that is timely filed um, should fail, meaning there's no causal connection and um, and it fails to state a claim. Counsel, um, you, is, isn't yes. the issue of causation, though, really one that is normally for a jury? Courts don't normally assess causation based on a complaint, especially when you're supposed to take the complaint you know, all well-pleaded factual allegations we have to interpret to the benefit of the plaintiff. So can you cite any cases where causation was determined on a motion to dismiss? Uh, not off the top of my head, Judge Ruckelman, but I will I will say that this is, a, uh, in my mind, a unique case where we have 
130 pages of allegations and exhibits to which the plaintiff points that give a much greater richness to the factual allegations than you would normally find in a motion, in an initial pleading. So in other words, when a motion to dismiss is typically filed and you're attacking the four corners of the complaint, there is usually not five or six exhibits that really show what truly happened. That's the kind of thing we would have found in discovery. I understand your argument, but I think the plaintiff attached documents that she thought supported some of her allegations. I don't think the plaintiff is suggesting that that's the only evidence that she would have if the case went forward in discovery. So it seems like you're treating it as if it is already a summary judgment record, which it isn't, and I think that's what's concerning me. But if I could move you to something else, do you agree that the district court erred here when it applied state law to counts one and two to the federal law claims? I've read National Railroad v. Morgan many, many times. My understanding of it and my view of it is that it emphasizes the distinction between discrete and nondiscrete claims. I'm sorry, counsel. I think I'm just asking you maybe just one step earlier, and I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. But the way I read the district court opinion, the district court discussed only state law in evaluating those claims, the claims, the federal claims in count one and two. So even if you're right on Morgan and some other federal law governs, my question is didn't the district court err here by applying state law to evaluate the substance of the federal law claims? There are so many overlaps to the analysis that if the district court did not clearly elucidate the permanency or lack of permanency aspect that is applicable to Massachusetts state law claims, then I believe it was harmless error because the outcome and the resulting conclusion should and was the same from the district court. In other words, regardless of whether or not that same awareness aspect applies, the district court reached the correct conclusion in the end. You know, I noted that in your brief you certainly did not concede there was any error. It's not clear to me precisely what the district court was doing. It does start with a citation to three federal cases subject to the three-year statute of limitations. And then it cites to continuing violation to a federal case that apparently applied Massachusetts state law. But it applied, it set forth a three-part test, which I think is pretty much the same as federal law, and then says as characterized by the SJC, and then it states the SJC's language that does seem to come to basically recite the same standard as the federal standard. So 
you know, it's just not clear to me exactly what the district court thought it was doing. But your argument is the standards that it applied are essentially the same. To the extent they differ, that wasn't what was at issue here. And so it doesn't really matter. Am I correct? Well, Your Honor, I guess you may be correct if I understand the way you're phrasing it. But I think my argument is that regardless of the application of the law, there's no place for the continuing violation theory or the continuing violation doctrine to apply to these claims. Why? Well, the accrual of a cause of action is usually at the time the discriminatory acts occur. When you have a hostile work environment claim, it's by its nature not one clear, discrete act. It's a series of events. And the continuing violations doctrine operates as sort of a savings mechanism to protect those plaintiffs who would not otherwise be aware that they had a claim within a relatively short administrative agency filing time period. So in those cases, it's important. It's still narrow, but it's important. We're not talking about that type of case here. And Morgan wasn't either. The Supreme Court in Morgan was dealing with a plaintiff who was aware of the acts that his employer committed, but not of the actual cause of action. In Ms. Ray's case, she has been saying for years and retaining attorneys and putting them on hold and sending demand letters for years that she's been the victim of a hostile work environment. She hasn't just been saying that the employer has acted a certain way towards her. She's truly said on multiple occasions, I am the victim of a hostile work environment. And where you have a plaintiff that has that level of awareness of their cause of action, I feel it would be so inappropriate and so contrary to the existing body of case law on these types of equitable tolling doctrines to apply it. But isn't that sort of exactly what the employers were saying in Morgan? They were saying the employee here, it's unreasonable that she shouldn't have brought this sooner. I believe in Morgan the court was looking at it was a black employee who had been subjected to many years of racial epithets and mistreatment and was aware of that. Again, it was aware of the acts of the employer. But that plaintiff in Morgan did not say, we don't have that information that the plaintiff ever said, I have this cause of action and I'm not choosing to exercise it. So in my mind and hopefully your minds as well, we don't even get to the analysis of whether or not the difference between the discrete and non-discrete analysis applies because it's not an appropriate scenario for this type of equitable tolling doctrine which should be applied in very narrow circumstances. The case law is clear that they should be used sparingly and I just don't think there's any place for it here. If I have a little time left, I would like to just talk about briefly how minor 
separating the discrete events, which would be the denial of the transfers, the suspension of a day without pay because she sent a letter, and the one other thing, it was, may I have just one more minute? Thank you. Thank you, Judge Montecalvo. So apart from those discrete events, which do fall outside the statutory time period, the remarkably minor nature of being asked to come to a meeting when a principal receives a parent complaint or being asked to come to a meeting when the nurse provides a student with a T-shirt that advertises alcohol and the student is walking around the middle school with it. These are the types of minor little quibbles that are essentially workplace skirmishes until you think of what the motivation was for the employer's actions. Here, you have a parent complaint. The principal is the one advocating for the students, trying to find out why there was a complaint. If there is a letter sent out in direct contravention of the principal's statement, please, you know, I don't want you to send that letter out, and Ms. Ray sends the letter out signing it from the principal, that's a direct act of insubordination where not only does the record not plot the complaint and the documents associated with it, not plausibly suggest entitlement to relief, it actually much more plausibly suggests the opposite. But counsel, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to understand. Are you saying those are discrete acts and therefore couldn't be counted, or are you saying they're just not severe or pervasive enough, or are you, I'm trying to understand exactly what your argument is about this. Yes, apologies if I wasn't clear, Judge Rickleman. I was saying that they were not severe or pervasive enough. Whether they're within or without the statutory time period, they cannot form the basis of a hostile work environment claim when there are clear allegations of what led to them. I don't think any reasonable reader... But that sounds like a factual finding, you know, and again, we're on a motion to dismiss. You're essentially arguing to us that we should conclude they were justified. True. I'm not so much asking you to find those facts. I'm suggesting Ms. Ray herself has presented those facts. These are part of her allegations, and that we take them as true as we must in a motion to dismiss setting. And if we take as true her acknowledgement that the principal said don't send a letter and she sent it anyways because she felt like he had abdicated his responsibilities to his students, or if we take the scenario where she went to her car to get her inhaler and when she couldn't find her inhaler, she sat and thought about her inhaler while a student was waiting in the central office of the school for medical attention that she herself, you know, had abandoned the student and was not available for them. So an administrator had to provide the medical care that she was supposed to provide. Those are the kinds of things where it just, it really doesn't make sense to me that there would be any plausible inference or plausible suggestion that they were related to any discriminatory animus when the facts, the allegations strongly suggest and mandate the conclusion that they were in direct response to 
her own missteps, and her own insubordination. I think that really sounds like a, a factual argument, counsel. I, I, you know, again, we're looking at this as a motion to dismiss. Um, I think when actions are close in time to protected conduct, you can make the inference that they were retaliatory. She's alleged a series of actions. So it just sounds like you're asking us really to make a factual finding on a motion to dismiss. I'm, I'm relying on Clorox v. Procter Gamble, Procter & Gamble, where the uh, documents associated with the complaint are relied upon with the, you know, as part of the allegations of the complaint. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. At this time, we counsel for the appellant. Please reintroduce herself on the record. There's a two-minute rebuttal. Thank you, Laurel Sankor, for the appellant. You're right in that my sister is asking you to make uh, judgments of findings of fact. Case law specifically says there's no formula for whether a series of actions are egregious enough to form a hostile work environment. And you can't merely look at fact patterns from other cases. They have to be analyzed on their own. And they also cannot be analyzed in isolation. So one of the things that Morgan has said is that prior acts, even if they're not actionable, can be used as background evidence. So obviously if you take one instance by itself and you try to explain it away, you might say, well, that's not discriminatory or not retaliatory. But you have to look at the whole, the totality of the circumstances. The fact that she had complained and this happened right after. The fact that he's called her a useless nurse. The fact that he stands over her desk and yells at her. The fact that he made fun of her in front of other employees. So you have to look at the totality of the circumstances. You can't just look at one act and say, in a motion to dismiss particularly, this act is not egregious and it doesn't rise to the level of a hostile work environment. Um, and Cal- as to the point Counsel, of- may I ask you, because there are claims, hostile work environment, retaliation, I'm just trying to understand how they relate. Is what you were arguing in this case that in retaliation for her protected conduct of advocating for uh, children with diabetes that the employer created the hostile work environment? That the hostile work environment was the action that was the retaliation? I'm just trying to understand how they connect, or do I have it wrong? Yes, so a hostile work environment can itself be an adverse action. So what happened here is we have a principal who said that children with diabetes aren't worthy. They don't deserve special attention. They don't deserve special accommodations. My client was trying to advocate for them and to get diabetes policy. Counsel, when was that statement made? Well before the... uh... Uh, limitation period, correct? How many years before? Um, it w- that would have been made in 2016. Um, but again, it shows. Uh, his- uh, can I? Uh, the district court, you know, you filed a very long discursive complaint and put more facts before the district court on your pleadings than most than we see in most cases and the way I read the district court's uh, rulings uh, as to the uh, events that were within the time frame based on your own allegations in your complaint uh, no plausible inference 
of severe and harassing conduct can be drawn. And maybe if you'd put less in there, the court wouldn't have had any basis for it. So I think in the end, the case comes down to whether one agrees with that plausible inference as to the timely events. You seem to agree with that because you're trying to get us to focus not just on those timely events, but on earlier events going back many years. So the earlier events can be used as background evidence to explain the timely events. Yes, but the law says you've got to show some plausible, when you plead your case, you've got to show some plausible connection in order to bring in those prior events. I mean, this is a pleading standard. It's not just an evidence standard. But I think what you have here is a pattern of behavior that stems from the same animus, the same person. Okay, got it. And there are cases that have said that sometimes an improper motive poisons all later interactions, such that the entire set of communications can be seen as tainted by discrimination. That's the Lipset case. So again, here, it's that you have this man who has this attitude, has expressed over and over this attitude, and my client has tried to get policies to help children, and he's done a variety of things over a long period of time. And then you can't then just isolate the three that are in the time period because it's out of context. This is a whole... Let me just, I want to test something. So she absents herself out to the parking lot, and she's not available to deliver services, and she doesn't respond to the intercom calls because she's outside. So are you saying that a jury could plausibly find that his calling her on the carpet about not being able to do her job and forcing somebody else to administer the medication, are you saying a jury could plausibly conclude that that was motivated either by discriminatory animus or by a desire to create a hostile environment to retaliate against her? Because you have to look at the scope of how he handled the incident. So he could have called her on her cell phone. He chose not to. He could have paged her once. He could have talked to her. She had left a note for her supervisor saying, I'm going to be right back. But what happened here is he paged her seven times in a short period of time. No other person has been paged. What's wrong with that when there's a student who needs medical care? Because the student, it wasn't a medical emergency. It was a normal thing. And what happened is he created this situation where when she came back into her office 
Everybody said, oh my gosh, what happened? Did somebody die? Why were you paid so many times? Oh my gosh. Uh, this, and, and she said nothing. You know, she just basically, this was a, a student who needed his insulin checked. Okay. Um, but he created this situation where she was meant to be, oh, she created this emergency. Everybody killed. The, throughout the rest of the day, people came up to her and said, my gosh, you know, what happened? Why were you paid seven times? Counsel, um, you're, you're so well over your time. You're well over your time. Okay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. That concludes argument in this case.